Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO podcast brought to you by WeCare365. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and we hope there will be lots of insights for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Our guest today is Darren Black, the CEO of Superfriend. Superfriend works with industry superannuation funds and life insurers to deliver mental health solutions to Australian workplaces. They also run Australia's largest wellbeing survey called Superfriend's Indicators of a Thriving Workplace and has some very good insights through that study. Darren has a fascinating background, first starting his career in the military as an army officer and UN peacekeeper. Since leaving the army, he has worked at a number of not-for-profits that are focused on improving the well-being of Australians. These have included Outward Bound, the Police Citizens Youth Club and Help. As you will hear, he is passionate about improving mental health and suicide prevention and also sits on the boards of Suicide Prevention Australia and the Australian Men's Health Forum. Darren is an innovative and pragmatic leader who strives every day to create a culture of care. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Darren Black to The Caring CEO. Welcome, Darren. Thank you very much, Graham. It's a pleasure to be with you. Darren, what does care in the workplace mean to you? Well, Graham, it, it, there's a lot of depth potentially, you know, in that question. I, I look, I, my first career was in the military, so I was trained as an army officer, and so, you know, I was I was taught, you know, first taught to really, you know, look after, look after your people, look after your soldiers, and um, take take good care of of your people, and you know, that was in an environment where. The circumstances meant that you know people were often we were often placing our people in danger, in physical danger, um, and in fact, you know, psychological danger. Um, and so, you know, thinking through really carefully, you know, applying that kind of care and diligence as a leader, I think was has been instilled in me um, for many many years. It's something I you know I think I probably just taken on a second nature that, you know, when you take on the role of, of leadership, it comes with responsibility and it's not just responsibility to deliver business outcomes, uh, but it's responsibility to look after the people in your care. And, and so this notion of duty, duty of care is something that, that I take on quite literally. And you've also, since leaving the military, worked in a lot of uh, not-for-profit social enterprises, hmm. uh, you know, you're doing good good work. It's all about care. But how do you balance that need between having a caring workplace but also a high-performing workplace? Well, uh, the, the, I think the first thing to say is that that you can. You can and, and in fact, I think you need to do that. Now, I work for an organisation now that's very much driven by research and data and insights that that um, and the, the research tells us that, you know, people who are happier, uh, feel valued, feel supported uh, at work, 
will contribute uh, better to the to the the outcomes and the performance of the organization. So I think there's a reciprocal benefit there of, you know, treating people with care and respect and diligence, providing good, you know, a good working environment, um, clear direction, clarity, um, clear job roles, support and resources to do their work, ensuring that people fit and feel like that they're able to apply their, their skills and their experience in a way that benefits benefits the organisation. Mm-hmm. And um, the evidence tells us that if you're able to do that, then it's going to lead to improved productivity and performance across your enterprise, across the business. So for me, it's um, the two go hand in hand. They're, they're, not, they're not mutually exclusive. You know, you can and need to, you know, look after the, the people and the culture of your organisation. And in my experience, that leads to improved performance of the business as well. Yeah. And, and for the purpose of our listeners, um, Darren, can you just explain your CEO of Superfriend? What does Superfriend do? So Superfriend is, it's essentially the mental health initiative that was established by the industry super funds and the, and the life insurers um, in Australia uh, about 15 years ago. And um, it was created because, you know, regrettably, uh, the insurers were seeing rising rates of claim that was was related to psychological harm in the workplace and rising rates of um, suicide-related death claims. So it was very much driven from a basis of seeing a problem, an increasing problem across workplaces and across society and um, the industry wanting to do something proactive about it. And so Superfriend is an initiative that is there to uh, look for ways to essentially improve workplace mental health and well-being. Uh, and, and today we work very much through a lens of Im- improving uh, the data and the evidence and the research that, that tells us what works and, and what, what best practice looks like in that, in that environment. And you also um, produce a yearly index on well-being uh, what's that called and, and what does it reveal? What does it show? Yeah, it's called the Indicators of a Thriving Workplace. I am. It's, uh, it's an annual uh, survey, effectively a research report that we produce. It goes across all industries and all sectors um, nationally. And it really, um, it is really helpful in terms of establishing um, changes or trends, themes in, in uh, areas uh, or where there's issues or problems in terms of workplace mental health, but also in areas where things um, are improving. And so, uh, what we what we get from that from that annual research report is that there are a few key we refer to them as domains in that workplace mental health space, and they include things like leadership. They include connection. They include work design and um, the safety or safety within the workplace. And more recently, that has expanded to include psychosocial risk and psychological safety, which has, you know, uh, went went into legislation in terms of workplace and employer requirements in April of this year. So um, it is, it's it's actually a terrific insight into workplaces nationally. nationally, uh, we, We get a lot of readership of um, of that report, 
And ultimately where we're taking it is to, is to start to provide deeper and richer insights to workplaces nationally around ways that they can improve um, mm. worker mental health, ways that they can improve policy and practice. Um, and ultimately, it, this, this comes right back to the first question you asked me around, you know, care and performance. And the, the fact is that you need to, and uh, you need to look after um, both the physical safety as well as the psychological and emotional safety of your workers. Um, that's now legislation nationally. Um, employers have that obligation, um, you know, from a compliance perspective, but we really, we come at it from uh, the perspective of it, it, it's, it's not only a legal requirement, but it's the right thing to do and, and it's the sensible thing to do in terms of um, performance of your business as well. There obviously would be lots and lots of data there. Um, what's, what, are, what are the trends now? What's changed in the last 12 months, do you think? Well, um, look, it's a really interesting time. I mentioned the, the advent of the new legislation around psychological safety. That's a big change. What we're seeing there is that many, many, many workplaces are worried. They realise they've got an obligation there. They know they've got to do something, but they're not very clear about what and how to approach that. So there's some new challenges and, and opportunities there. And of course, that's all coming on the back of, you know, coming out of the post-COVID pandemic period where, you know, you and I were talking earlier around the impact of, you know, businesses being um, locked down and, and many of us sort of learning to do business by remote, by virtual um, uh, for a couple of years there. So um, there's been some massive changes in the work environment in the last two or three years um, that, that mean the, the re responsibility of the leadership, uh, today in running, running any enterprise is more complex than it, than it probably ever has been before in terms of understanding your obligations and responsibilities, but also just in terms of, uh, you know, care and diligence for people today in that environment. So we're, we're, we're getting, we're getting, there's a lot of interest around the insights that we provide and, um, increasingly calls for training that will help um, leaders and supervisors around awareness in the workplace. What does a mentally friendly or mentally healthy workplace look like? How do you create that environment? Um, and providing some practical and kind of tangible tools for people that they can use so that, you know, this sort of theory can actually become, become a uh, common practice. Yeah. And, and um, Gallup research estimates that a manager contributes 70% towards the, um, the engagement and well-being of the team. Do you also see managers as playing a, a really essential role? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, leadership has, you know, you could argue always been critical to the success of any enterprise or any organisation. We're finding that leadership is pivotal. It's, it's one of the key domains and... Um, Teams and organisations can sort of rise or fall on the on the strength and quality of their leadership, yeah. and so uh, you know one of the things we need to be conscious of these days, you know, from a governance perspective, from a board perspective, is is supporting our leaders and, and ensuring that they've got the right resources and the right tools to be able to, you know, manage and cope um, and do well 
in, in that environment. You started your career, just jumping back, um, in the, in the army or in, in the defense force. What was, um, you know, one or two highlights from your time in that space? <laughs> uh, well, um, oh, look, there are many, there were many highlights. Um, look, I think, I think, uh, one of them was actually the opportunity to, to teach, um, uh, the next generation of, of young leaders at the Royal Military College Duntroon, where I was a graduate of, and, but I had the opportunity to go back there as an instructor and a staff member several years later. And um, what I loved about that was that you were there to provide expertise and training the, the young officer, you know, candidates, the cadets, um, it, and there was elements of technical competence that were required, but the, the thing that I thought was most important was, um, I guess setting, setting an example, uh, of, you know, behavior and conduct. And, you know, very, very much we, we were there to, to be role models and set, set the standard for the kind of the next generation of young leaders. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a terrific, that was a terrific opportunity, um, to contribute and to, you know, to serve and, and to support the development of, you know, the next generation of young leaders and, you know, something I'd had the opportunity to experience and learn and then, and then, uh, you know, contribute and give back. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, that was certainly a great highlight for me. And, and I guess it, it probably was a, a strong motivator and, and driver in, in the work that I've done since leaving the army, mm-hmm. um, much of which has been around, um, the development, um, of, of others, um, uh, particularly, you know, having led a couple of uh, youth development organisations, um, very focused, very much focused around um, leadership development, um, character development, and um, you know, building building good good young people and citizens for the future. So, uh, the army had a very very positive, you know, it was a very positive experience for me, and you know, I had some terrific opportunities to learn and grow and develop um, through that journey. And as you said, um, Darren, you, when you left, you've been primarily involved in the social enterprise or not-for-profit sector, and you seem to have taken, especially in the last few years, a real focus on improving mental health. And you had a stint at OzHelp as well as your current role now, and I also see that you're a uh, non-executive director of the Australian Men's Health. Why does that really resonate with you? What What's the um, thing that has drawn you to that sector? Yeah, Graham, it's a, it's a good good question. Um, look, I mean, I think I think fundamentally, there's there's you know, there's a bit of personal experience and there of um, having uh, having lost uh, colleagues um, who I served with, and I you know that. I, I was fortunate in my military service. I, I had operational service in the Middle East, but I never, I never lost any colleagues um, through conflict or, or, or through warlike service. Um, you know, I had mates who were who who were wounded, and um, but but I did lose you know a couple of a couple of a couple of mates to to suicide, and that happened. Um, you know, after they left uh, the service, and um, 
you know, they really struggled. Uh, I think there are elements there of um, PTSD, um, relationship breakdowns, contributing factors. But I, I think those sort of experiences, you know, they it, it, they really can challenge, but they they can also be a motivator uh, for trying to do you know do make make things better. And and so my my work in recent years in mental health, uh, whilst it hasn't been uh, focused on veterans, it's been very strongly focused around um, high risk. Um, cohorts, often in male-dominated industries. And, you know, I think there's a very strong motivation there to improve awareness and improve the communication uh, around the risks, the risk factors, uh, but also the protective factors. And one of the things that we know, we know really clearly is that work, work can be a tremendously positive Thing and, a, and a really strong protective factor in terms of people's mental health. Mm. Uh, and this is very much, uh, I think, what drew me to the role at Superfriend, um, which is all about providing um, insights and guidance and advice around, you know, what are the, what are the protective factors of work that um, keep people well? Um, and work is, 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 is much more than about, you know, earning an income, paying the bills, you know, paying the mortgage and so on. Um, we, we know that work, when it's good, um, provides people with great um, meaning and purpose and an ability to contribute and to feel valued and to feel connected and part of a community. And, and there's so, so many benefits to uh, work when it's working well. And so um, there, there's, a, there's a few thoughts and uh, <laughs> as to what sort of got me to where I'm at um, in this role today. Yeah, thank you for sharing that background. When you think about leadership teams, have you found there's any difference between what you've had to create in the not-for-profit sector versus what you've had to versus your military leadership in terms of how the teams run? No, look, look, not not really. Uh, you know, I think there's some cultural nuances and, and every organisation, I mean, one of the things I've learned, uh, Graham, is that every organisation, every industry has, you know, these cultural nuances and and you need to be sensitive to the culture of your organisation and understand it. Um, but, but the fundamentals, I think, are really consistent and you know, one of the one of the absolute fundamentals is that is that in any team, or if you want it to be a high performing team, you've you've got to have you've got to build trust uh, across the team, and um, and that trust needs to be built on you know mutual respect um, of the individuals and an understanding of you know what what is our collective um, role or, or mission or purpose. And and then what what are individuals you know kind of roles and responsibilities within that? So you know for me um, team leadership development and the, and the the stuff you know creation of a high performing team um, always requires uh, trust across the team. It always requires um, clarity uh, of mission, purpose, roles, tasks, responsibilities, all that sort of sort of thing. It always requires good communication and consistent communication. Um, 
And and I think one of the things that people appreciate is consistency. I mean, um, there's there's enough um, challenge and and um, uh, change and irregularity in the world, and I think people need consistency from from their from their leadership. So, um, trust, consistency, good communications, clarity. Um, there's some I think you know just common um, factors there to leading and creating any any high-performing team across any workplace. Thanks for being part of the Care First movement. You may be interested in some free resources that we've prepared at wecare365.com.au. First resource is a building a mentally healthy culture checklist, which contains all the elements that you'll need to prepare and launch a mentally healthy workplace program and how to build momentum for up to a year after that launch. The second resource is how to support a teammate or a loved one in distress poster. This provides guidance about how to identify someone who is struggling, how to have the are you okay conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help they need. These resources can be found at wecare365.com.au. It's interesting in, in recent years, there's been a real discovery that psychological safety is a, is a basic foundation of any high-performing team where people feel that interpersonal respect and trust, where they can be their authentic self, mm-hmm. where they feel they can make ideas and challenge ideas they don't believe in. How do you make it safe in the team you lead to, for people to be able to challenge an idea they don't, they don't agree with? Well, look, I mean, I think this is, um, it's hard to put a recipe around this, but I think, uh, you know, a part of it is ensuring that the space that you create is safe and it is safe to, to ask, to challenge, to inquire. I mean, one of the things I always, you know, say to my, my team is, you know, we, we, we need to walk out of the room, um, Whatever the the, you know, the the challenge, the issue, or the decision is that we're considering, we need to walk out of the room in agreement. But the conversation that sort of goes on in the room has has got to be open and honest. And um, you all need to feel able to kind of challenge the status quo, to to disagree. Um, you, you know, your role is not is not to agree with me as the CEO. Um, your, 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 your role and sort of obligation is to, is to say what you think and, um, and look, look for ways to help us get better and to improve and to come up with better ways of work and, and making, making the best decisions we can with the information that we've got. And so if you're going to make the best decisions you can with the information you've got, then every member of your team has got to feel able that they can speak up and, um, share their their thoughts and their opinions in a respectful, you know, uh, you know, courteous um, uh, sort of sort of culture. So it's it, it, I haven't sort of told told you or the or the listeners how to do it. I mean, it's a it's a thing. It's a process. It takes time. Um, but I think a lot of it comes down to how you treat people, yeah. um, and and also how do you how you respond. When things don't go, you know, according to plan, or or don't go um, as well as you'd hoped, 
And um, and when that ha- when that happens, I think it's it's probably almost more important than when things go great, because when things are going great, it's easy to sort of pat people on the back and say, hey. You know, look look at what we've done. This is terrific. But if things don't go so well, then then what is critical at that point is that you you I guess you reflect upon what happened and why and why you know it didn't go as we planned. Um, and then very quickly get to well, how do we how do we improve? How do we do it best? How do we do it better next time without without assigning blame uh, to people? So. I think that I think there's there's some ways around creating a culture of safety mm. and confidence and respect, mm. um, and, and it comes at, you know, it comes from that sort of um, basis of trust and respect that you build among a team, and there's some of the ways that I think you do it. Yeah, very good. And and um, I had spoken recently to um, Amy Evans, and you know who's from the Harvard professor that really is yeah. champion psychological safety for a while and she talks about you know we need a culture that um welcomes failure but it should be intelligent failure <laughs> so you know because we can never be 100 percent when we make a decision and your hypothesis is doing this and to the best you knowledge that's the right path forward if it works out fantastic but if it doesn't, you know, that also is to be celebrated. We've tried something, it hasn't quite worked. How do we respond to it then? Is that uh, something that you think is well taught in leadership places now, whether it's universities or, or private training programs? Look, no, I don't. And I think there's, there's a real opportunity for us to do that. Better and with much greater insight. Look, at it, and I think Amy Edmondson's, you know, a, a great thought leader around psychological safety. And so I would, I would really agree and embellish that. I, I think um, rarely are we taught to essentially celebrate failure, but in fact, the the greatest ways that you learn is by trying things, not succeeding the first time, trying again, improving, and then you know, ultimately, you improve, you improve. And um, and uh, that that is that's where the, the greatest learnings and often the greatest successes come from is not is not easy success but hard fought sort of you know wins over time and so uh, you know try and test and adjust and failure along the way is absolutely essential in terms of uh, product development uh, in terms of service delivery in terms of you know and and even in, in terms of building a high performing team and it's accepting that. Rarely are you going to get things perfect the first time, mm-hmm. um, and often it's a, it's an iterative process of try and test and fail and learn from that and and try again. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think I actually think there's great wisdom in that, and but I don't think we we teach that um, at all. In fact, in most business schools, uh, in some of the entrepreneurial uh, schools of entrepreneurs and that that sort of um, Thing. I think this is a much more um, accepted way of thinking, and it sort of comes back to that sort of theory that if you you know you're going to fail, fail fast, and then mm-hmm. and then learn from that, and then try again and iterate. Um, so look, I'm I'm very much an advocate of that um, that approach and that that way of thinking. Mm. 
I've always uh, fascinated by careers and ups and downs and careers. I worked in recruitment and career management for about 15 years or so, and and it is filled with ups and downs. If you had mm. a career crisis uh, at any stage, and what did you learn from that? Um, look, I, I, I mean, I think the, the, the point of reflection for me was, was a crisis that I had to deal with. It was it was more than a, a career crisis for me, but it was it was a crisis I had to deal with at work, and it was the uh, you know the most I would say on reflection, you know, most challenging day and period of my life prof- uh, uh, professional life, and it was it was the day that we um, in a previous workplace had found out that one of our one of our staff one of our our team had had um, taken their own life. So we had a suicide in, in, in of one of our people. And, uh, you know, that was a very, very challenging situation to deal with. I, and I, you know, I, I think at that point I'd had all sorts of challenging, you know, situations that I'd been exposed to in my military career and um, felt that I was pretty well prepared to deal with uh, crisis um, from a whole range of perspectives, but um, not that one. Um, yeah, I mean that was that was something uh, very new, and uh, you know I don't think I don't think you know anyone is really prepared for that sort of situation. So it, it was a real reflection point, and we had to we had to stop and pause and. You know, our team needed support, and I very quickly realised that you know I needed support um, through the, through that that whole situation in terms of being able to you know continue to lead with care and diligence and support the team through in a, in a sense in essence what was a you know it was a, a traumatic and sort of grieving period. Yeah, so you know there was a whole journey there of of, of guiding a, a team and an organisation of people through a grieving process um, that that you know that they were able to um, bounce back from and and continue. Sadly, through my work with Are You Okay and the work I do with companies, that's not unusual anymore. Really, sadly, it it's, happens in. A surprising number of workplaces. Having the experience of going through it once, mm. obviously the goal is to prevent. You know, you and I are very much in the prevention stage. But if that tragedy does happen, is there anything you would do differently, or what would you recommend that other leaders did if they experience this situation as well? Uh, well. Um you know, I'd say it's not the sort of thing that there's a there's a manual for or a checklist for, um, but there were certainly some, I think, really good lessons learned from that process for me and for our team at that time. You know, one of them, you know, I think uh, Graham was, uh, you know, don't don't think you you have to kind of shoulder responsibility for that all by yourself. Um, and you know, it became very, very clear that you know we we were we were all surprised when that happened. It took it took every it took it took everyone in the organisation by surprise. But um, the the level of 
kind of leaning in that I think occurred, you know, in terms of that sort of peer support, that sort of, you know, mates and, and colleagues sort of, you know, rallying around each other um, was, uh, you know, in some respects was just um, really, you know, heartwarming to see. Um, but as a leader, I mean, I think for me, I found it, the default for me was to go into crisis kind of management response and to think through, okay, we've got a problem here. What are the steps into the, you know, that I need to kind of follow in terms of trying to work our way through this problem? And part of that was to, to, to realize I didn't have all the answers. No one did. Um, we needed to be compassionate, um, uh, with each other. We needed to be supportive of each other. We needed to be supportive of the family. Uh, we needed to surround ourselves with, um, with other experts. Um, because, you know, I had a team of nurses and social workers and counselors. The risk there was that well, they end up counseling each other. And so we very quickly made a decision not to have our counselors providing sort of trauma support to other staff that we brought in independent. Um, you know, trauma-informed experts to help coach and guide and support our people through that whole process. So there's a lot there. And I think it, 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 in that situation, easy to become overwhelmed, but, you know, lean in, be patient, be compassionate. Um, don't think you've got all the answers and you've got to solve all this yourself. Draw on external um, supports and expertise um, to support yourself and and the rest of your team. Um, through that process. And, you know, my sort of prayer and hope um, for any of your other listeners is that actually they, you know, you you never have to experience that yourselves. That's a really great overview. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I can just imagine what a, you know, challenging that time would have been. Um, and as I said, I've sadly spoken to, you know, a number of other leaders that have had to navigate that whole path themselves and uh you know they just basically confirm what you said you know it's just there's no one size fits all it's a matter of um assessing and just realizing what you can do and what you can't do and what external experts you need to move through this and to um you know step forward and because uh, you just can't you can't stay in the same place, but you also have to honor the situation and honor honor the person as well. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's a hard juggle. Indeed. What do you do for self-care? Darren, how 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 do you keep your own tank full? <laughs> well, Graham, you know, having sort of grown up in the military and then um you know run outdoor education organizations, I, I have a great uh, passion the nature in the outdoors. So uh, the great circuit breaker for me is a bit of quiet time um, in the mountains, usually off the grid. And and I find that, uh, you know, from time to time, it's just the best therapy for me um, to throw a backpack on, head into the hills, um, out of mobile um, coverage, uh, usually with, with a mate, or by one of my kids, or sometimes even just solo, and just mm. take a bit of time out. And I think uh, you know, for me, uh, nature has great healing power. And 
there's uh, we have taught this we've taught this for years, and I, I think regrettably in this very fast paced um, technology driven sort of um, society that we live in these days, where you know we are constantly being barraged with um, with media and with um, information through a range of social platforms. Um, you know, pe- people talk about always being on and like always being switched on and always being available and accessible. And, um, you know, that, that can have um, really a detrimental effects, I think, on our health over time. Um, and so I think there's great value in, in having those periods where you literally are offline, uh, off the grid. And for me, the, a, a way to do that is um, in, into nature, into the outdoors. And, you know, I, look, I commend it to anyone who works in leadership, uh, any sort of, you know, senior position of responsibility where your time is in high demand, um, where you are, you know, sort of regularly placed under pressure of performance and decisions and um, uh, being constantly accessible and available to to make that time, you know, for yourself, you know, for your for reconnection with your family and your friends. I think we all need downtime. The old, the classic old, you know, military saying of R and R, you know, stands for rest and recreation. And we all need it in our in our own way to to rebalance and um, so you can come back and continue uh, to do the good work that that we're here to do. Yeah, I share your uh, passion for time in nature. I've been fortunate enough to you know do a number of walks, um, including the Kokoda Track and mm. a number of other walks around the world. Um, but I, I I came across something which I thought was really really interesting, which plays very much to your point. It's a uh, a solo adventurer called Colin O'Brady, and one of his claims to fame is going across Antarctica unaided and unassisted. Yeah. And and, <laughs> um, and to do that, he had to get into the habit of really marching for 12 hours every day. That was part of it. So that happened a number of years back. And when COVID hit, you know, he suddenly couldn't do his adventures anymore. And so he had this idea of just going for a 12-hour walk and uh, without any phone or even company, a 12-hour walk by yourself. And I heard about this on a, a podcast and I thought, oh, I've got to give that a go. <laughs> and so I did it. And it, it is quite amazing, you know, without another person with you or without using your phone, unless you've got to find the blue dot to make sure you're not lost, <laughs> but to go for that period of time. Yeah. And it really helped me to identify, you know, the things that were really important to me in terms of how I want to live my life. And I came up with the five C's, which is caring, centered, curious, uh, constructive, and chuckling. And, <laughs> I, and I don't think... Right. <laughs> that would ever have happened if I didn't do that uh, 12-hour walk. So I really commend people to think about that. You know, there's actually a book now called The 12-Hour Walk, but there is something magic that happens when you do have, without the distractions, you know, just to really focus on uh, yourself and what you're experiencing. 
Uh, look, totally. I mean, it's that's uh, really resonant with um, uh, reflective practice we used to do on our outward bound courses, and uh, every outward bound course we would design with um, with an element of solo experience in there because typically it was group work, either with young people or adults, and working together, traveling on a journey uh, in a group over a number of days. But we would also always try and factor in a period of, of a few hours or half a day or overnight um, of solo reflection time. Mm. And it was very, very powerful. Mm. Um, and, you know, often um, our people, our participants would, would get, learn, learn the most lasting lessons and and sort of form these commitments to themselves much like you did with your five c's mm. um through that sort of that solo that solo period um, mm. so you're very uh connected with your the 12 hour walk i've i've probably done many many 12 hour walks <laughs> in, in my in my time <laughs> uh, it's been an absolute pleasure catching up today Dan. i really thank you for uh, you know, you're, you're sharing your ideas, but also some really tough experiences as well uh, and, and what you learned from that. I always uh, finish by asking um, my guests, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self if you, if you could go back and share that? What comes to mind for you? Oh, wow. That's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, somewhat challenging question i um look i think there's there's probably two things there's there's a bit of trust yourself trust your instincts but also but also take wise advice so so look carefully you know through your trusted advisors uh, and whether, you know, whether it's your parents or, you know, your first boss or, you know, your first footy coach or, uh, you know, uh, whoever that, that personal people might be. And I think there were times I, I look back now and I think I, um, you know, young, headstrong, thought I knew what was right. And I do recall there were, were instances where, you know, there were there were people kind of older and wiser than I, giving me certain uh, advice. And there was a couple of points that I kind of wish I'd listened to it. And um, so, yeah, look look for those trusted advisors, to take counsel um, and, and use that to help guide you um, because, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, that's, that's great uh, perspective. Thanks for being part of the Caring CEO, Darren. Absolute pleasure, Graham. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you've learned some practical tips that you can try with your team. If you've enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing more details about our simple, scalable WeCare365 mental health training programs, please visit us at wecare365.com.au. We strive to make these programs easily accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a caring CEO you would like to see interviewed, please email us at support at wecare365.com.au. Thanks once again for joining us.